Good morning, children. I am just sitting at the dinner table. It's about close to 10 a.m. On, on the 2nd of December. I'm, I stayed home today. I did a lot of work yesterday, and I, I actually had a lot of insomnia last night, this morning. I woke up, I think, at 1, and I just could not go back to sleep, so I literally walked to the office around 2, did some work, came home like around 3-ish, and... So, I'm dragging a little bit, not too much, but we, uh, we have a new next door neighbor. She's moving in right now. And she said, you guys are really sweet and nice. So I thanked her for her delusions. And uh, I'm joking, I did say that to her, but she laughed. She understood it was a joke. That's what I love about you all. You all understand my sense of humor. And that's weird for small children to understand the subtleties of passive aggressiveness especially the entrepreneur. You absolutely love it. I uh, really enjoy, you know, I listened to, I listened to the, the podcast right before this one, and I, I really enjoyed it. I just love listening to you guys, and I, I feel it's so, it's such a treasure to do, like, a bedtime routine, like, to say goodnight to you guys, talk to you about your day, and it's just, you know, I take it for granted, and I, I'm going to really try not to. Because, you know, I have an 11, 10, 8, and 6-year-old, and I'm going to blink, and then you guys are going to be out of the house, and that's going to that's gonna be tough. So I, I just listening to you guys talk about like, your day and stuff going on, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing to me. So, so it's Advent, it's, and we have a... Your mom did this cute little advent calendar thing with, with like an empty, like stable area, and we have magnets that we open up every day or candy, and we add the magnets to the stable, which will populate a nativity scene. On day 24, I think is the baby Jesus, and we put that in there. I think to complete it, it's really cute, and you guys are really excited about it. So now that I'm talking about that, I feel like I'm just riffing here. Um, maybe we should talk about some of our Christmas traditions. So, one thing your mom and I have instituted is we don't give credit to Santa Claus for big gifts. And we do that for a couple of reasons. True, we live in an affluent neighborhood, and you kids go to a, you know, middle, upper class school. But we feel like if you guys got a really great gift from Santa... Two things are happening. We're not getting the credit, <laughs> and we're the ones that bought it. And also, if you tell one of your friends you got something from Santa that's, like, really nice, and they didn't get something really nice from Santa, that's going to make them feel like they're not good or or they're, there's something wrong with them, and there's not. So our, we, we've come to this policy, me and your mom, that what we get from Santa is just what's stuffed in the stockings. Because the actual St. Nicholas... From, I forget where he's from. It's going to come to me after I stop recording. The actual St. Nicholas, he he would go around and, and put coins in people's stockings, I think, to make sure that they, they weren't kicked out of their homes. He would go around. He was a very, very, very generous man. Nice, no, that's where... Now, now I have to look it up. But the real St. Nick... Um, let's see. The real St. Nick... He's from 
uh, yeah, he was of Myra, St. Nicholas of Myra. And um, you kids, every year, trying to make more and more elaborate traps. And I think the older two are aware, even the, maybe the, even the older three are aware that Santa Claus is an actually magical guy that comes down our chimney. One, because our chimneys are blocked off. But I think our youngest still believes in Santa. So we're going to, we're just going to keep moving with the delusion for now. It's fun. You know, even as a Christian, I have a lot of Christian friends who are just fundamentally against the idea of, of Santa. It's like, okay, my kids believe in Jesus Christ. I think they could have just a little bit of fun with Christmas. And, and we don't. Well, one thing we don't do is we don't water down the Christmas story. It is not about Santa. It's about the birth of Jesus Christ. So another tradition we do besides the Advent that you guys are aware of is we hide a star somewhere in the house, and we have wise men that are looking at the star. So anywhere in the, I think it's the downstairs, we hide this star. It's about as big as an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, but... You kids decorated it a few years ago. So in the morning, you guys will run around and look for the wise men. And they'll see, oh, where are the wise men looking? Oh, there's the star. Uh, kind of like the Christmas story where the wise men are following the star of David to meet Jesus. So that's fun. Another thing, let's see, another thing we do that you guys don't know about, and you, you won't know about this till you're much older, is we, we hide all the gifts in my office. We, we do a lot of shopping. We're going to be doing, all, I think, a lot of shopping this Friday on our date night. And we bring all the gifts to my office, all of them. And we buy a ton of wrapping paper. And a couple weeks before Christmas, we use a date night to wrap it all up. And my office is like one-third gifts. And not just for you guys, for other people too. So that's, it's kind of funny. Like, meeting with clients is kind of awkward. I try not to, just because, you know, some clients don't have a lot of money, and I just I try to be sensitive about other people's um, incomes and stuff. So it's, I feel like it's kind of like bragging to show, like, all the gifts that we get for you guys. So, so anyways, I think those are, I think those are all our traditions. You know, when I was younger and I was dating your mom, her family would have this huge Christmas Eve party, enormous, on your um, on your mom's mom's side. Her grand her her parents who lived down the street from us, they would have this enormous party, and everyone would show up. There'd be like fifty or sixty people there, and the stories I was told this is before I came on the scene. The stories I was told is they would have these parties till like two or three in the morning. And it would just be this cool, fun, you know, jovial experience. And at the very end, the grandparents would come out, the patriarch and matriarch of this side of the family, with, with envelopes with, for $100 each. And your mom's, your, your grandma, your, your grandma's brother, who I really don't like at all. <laughs> I should really edit that out. Um, your grandmother, your your grandma's brother, would announce. He would like make comments like, "Oh, this person is this and that." He wouldn't say the names, but people would have to guess who it's for. So when I came on the scene, it wasn't hundred dollar bills; it was fifty dollar bills. 
and you'd have to stay till the very end because they wouldn't do the the they wouldn't divvy out the money until the very very end. So you'd have to stay the whole time. I could see how that was kind of a problem. When you think about it, you know your grandma, you know was married to your grandpa, and then they got divorced. But I could see how that was kind of a strain on her, because you have to deal with Christmas morning and Christmas morning, with children. Stressful. It's pretty stressful. Your mom and I didn't, religiously have not gone to bed before two or three a.m. on a good night, on a good Christmas Eve night. So I think that wore its welcome out eventually, and I mean eventually. The grandparents ended up passing away, so they kind of put a stop to that. But I, I remember that tradition. You know, one, let's see, like one tradition we would have, we didn't really have many for, for Christmas. I mean, we had a nativity scene, which was which I remember playing with. I'm sure I broke some of it. And uh, my oldest sister got that. And, and uh, it's, it's, I'm so glad she has it, and we get to see it every year. It's really great. I think Christmas Eve, we would have family come over our house, or we'd go somewhere. I don't know. I was always anxious to get to bed, because the sooner you get to bed, the sooner you wake up. So I'd, get, I'd try and go to bed at 6 p.m., which was problematic. And when I was much younger, and all of my three older sisters were living in the house, I shared a room with my youngest of the older sisters, and she liked to sleep in. So at 4 a.m., I'd wake up, and I would like say her name. I'd like, hey you think Santa came? And she would like look up. She's like, George, go back to sleep. And I'm editing and censoring what she really said. But, you know, my mom and dad did an amazing job with Christmas. And I, you know, looking back, I'm sure they didn't have a lot of money, but they made it magical. I remember, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about Christmas because I'm looking at an enormous tree. It's like 10 feet tall. It's beautiful. You guys picked it out. Um, so I'm just thinking about all these memories are coming back to me. One memory I have, um, probably the greatest gift I've ever, I'll, I'll tell you this, the single greatest gift my parents ever gave me. And the more I think about it, the more I realize it absolutely was the greatest gift. Was, um, it was a, a medical dictionary, of all things. I got it in fifth grade. And the reason it was so great, how much I, why I loved it so much, was because as the youngest kid, you kind of feel like, you know, your parents don't pay attention to you. They do, but you kind of have that feeling like, oh, they care about, they have so many other things going on, because with my older siblings, they're in different generations. You know, I'm, I'm having kids and raising kids, and guess what? Their kids are having kids and raising kids. So I'm kind of like on their, I mean, I'm that peer, their peer level, but different, there's different types of um, attention being made, and like, all my parents' friends were friends with all my older sisters' um, friends' parents. So it's, you feel a little left out and feel kind of like a little ignored. And I think a lot of that is just made up from just being, um, feeling vulnerable. But when I opened up that gift Christmas morning, and it was a medical dictionary. It was a big medical di- It wasn't like the small thing. It was like a big, like an encyclopedia a huge book, um, blue, I remember it. Uh, I opened it up, and I, and I realized something. I realized my mom and dad, they were paying attention. They were really paying attention to what I wanted to be. And at the time, I wanted to be a doctor. And I talked about wanting to be a doctor all the time. And I remember I diagnosed one of my dad's 
pains in his back. Like I found the muscle. I went to the encyclopedia and he went to our doctor who was just a beloved. I loved him. Just for anonymity, I'm not going to say it because you guys, if, if someone who isn't my four children listening to this, they'll be able to pinpoint like where I'm at. And, but I, I loved the doctor growing up and, and he, he was blown away. He's like, I can't believe it. Your son found the actual muscle. It, uh, it felt great. It's the, um, it's the acknowledgement that you're there. And you don't get a lot of that when you got a lot of kids, you know, drop something. Which is the price you pay for having a lot of kids. You know, you can't always be around. And that's something me and your mom try and fight against constantly. Like once a week, your mom takes you guys out to lunch. Like one of you, she'll take you guys out during your lunchtime and take you to Applebee's or take you to some place to get lunch and just have some one-on-one time. And that's, that's amazing. Your mom's a good mom. So, so that was my favorite. That, that was by far the most meaningful Christmas gift I've ever been given. That medical encyclopedia, which, um, which wasn't the gift. It was what had to happen to get the gift. They had to listen to me, and think that I could be a doctor. And jokes on them. I'm, I'm a lawyer. So, anyways, enough of that. We are in numbers nineteen. No, excuse me, eighteen. And it just blows me away. Um, I mentioned this before, but it just blows me away. The blessings God made on the Levites because they did not bow down and worship the calf when Moses was up on Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's followed into so many, it will go into many generations. Um, this, their, their faith and their devotion to God. So, I'm going to take a sip of something to drink. I think it's a Dr. Pepper. I don't think I know. Today's an early day, so I'm home today. I'm going to be doing laundry. Maybe that'll, hopefully that'll make your mom happy. You boys, whatever you do with when you're married, figure out what makes your wife happy and do it all the time without her asking. And, uh... We've been married twenty. So we've been married seventeen years and together twenty five, and I'm still trying to figure out what makes her happy. So, sip. All right. Numbers eighteen. The Lord said to Aaron, "You, your sons, and your father's family are to bear the responsibility of offenses against the sanctuary, and you or your sons alone are to bear the responsibility for offenses against the priesthood." Bring your fellow Levites from your ancestral tribe to join you and assist you when you and your sons minister before the tent of the testimony. They are to be responsible to you and are to perform all the duties of the tent, but they must not go near the furnishings of the sanctuary or the altar, or both they and you will die. They are to join you and be responsible for the care of the tent of meeting, all the work of the tent, and no one else may come near where you are. You are to be responsible for the care of the sanctuary and the altar so that wrath so, yeah, so that wrath will not fall on the Israelites again. I myself have selected your fellow Levites from among the Israelites as a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to do the work of the tent of meeting. But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. I am giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. Then the Lord said to Aaron, I myself have put you in charge of the offerings presented to me 
All the holy offerings the Israelites give me, I give to you and your sons as your portion and regular share. You are to have the part of the most holy offerings that is kept from the fire. From all the gifts they bring me as most holy offerings, whether grain or sin or guilt offerings, that part belongs to you and your sons. Eat it as something most holy. Every male shall eat it. You must regard it as holy. This also is yours. Whatever is set aside from the gifts of all the wave offerings of the Israelites, I give this to you and your sons and daughters as your regular share. Everyone in your household who is ceremonial clean may eat it. I give you all the finest olive oil and all the finest new wine and grain they give the Lord as the first fruits of their harvest. All the land's first fruits that they bring to the Lord will be yours. Everyone in your household who is ceremonial clean may eat it. Everything in Israel that is devoted to the Lord is yours. The first offspring of every womb, both man and animal, that is offered to the Lord is yours. But you must redeem every firstborn son and every firstborn male of unclean animals. When they are a month old, you must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. But you must not redeem the firstborn of an ox, a sheep, or a goat. They are holy. Sprinkle their blood on the altar and burn their fat as an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Their meat is to be yours, just as the breast of the wave offering and the right thigh are yours. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and daughters as your regular share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt for the Lord for both you and your offspring. The Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. From now on, the Israelites must not go near the tent of meeting, or they will bear the consequences of their sin and will die. It is the Levites who are to do the work at the tent of meeting and bear the responsibility for offenses against it. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. They will receive no inheritance among the Israelites. Instead, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. That is why I said concerning them, they will have no inheritance among the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Levites and say to them, When you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. Your offering will be reckoned to you as grain from the threshing floor or juice from the wine press. In this way, you also will present an offering to the Lord from all the tithes you receive from the Israelites. From these tithes, you must give the Lord's portion to Aaron the priest. You must present as the Lord's portion the best and holiest part of everything given to you. Say to the Levites, when you present the best part, it will be reckoned to you as the product of the threshing floor or wine press. You and your households may eat the rest of it anywhere, for it is your wages for your work at the tent of meeting. By presenting the best part of it, you will not be guilty in that matter. Then you will not defile the holy offering of the Israelites, and you will not die. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is a requirement of the law. Excuse me, chapter 19. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, this is a requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect or blemish, and that has never been under a yoke. Give it to Eleazar. I keep messing that up. Eleazar the priest. It is to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Then Eleazar 
The priest is to take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. While he watches, the heifer is to be burned, its hide, flesh, blood, and offal. Offal? Offal. That's what it is. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet wool and throw them onto the burning heifer. After that, the priest must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He may then come into the camp, but he will be ceremonial unclean until evening. The man who burns it must also wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he too will be unclean until evening. A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonial clean place outside the camp. They shall be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It is for purification from sin. The man who gathers up the ashes of the heifer must also wash his clothes, and he too will be unclean until evening. This will be a lasting ordinance, both for the Israelites and for the aliens living among them. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself with the water on the third day, and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third and seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone and fails to purify himself defiles the Lord's tabernacle. That person must be cut off from Israel. Because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on him, he is unclean. His uncleanness remains on him. This is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days. And every open container without a lid fastened on it will be unclean. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword, or someone who has died a natural death, or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. For the unclean person, put some ashes from the burn purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. Then a man who is ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop, dip it in water, and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who were there. He must also sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or someone who has been killed or someone who has died a natural death. The man who is clean is to sprinkle the unclean person on the third and seventh days, and on the seventh day he is to purify himself. The person being cleaned <clears throat> must wash his clothes <coughs> and bathe with water, and that evening he will be clean. But if a person who is unclean does not purify himself, he must be cut off from the community because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on him, and he is unclean. This is a lasting ordinance for them. The man who sprinkles the water of cleansing must also wash his clothes, and anyone who touches the water of cleansing will be unclean till evening. Anything that an unclean person touches becomes unclean, and anyone who touches it becomes unclean till evening. A very interesting... Things about cleanliness. Just looking... Looking at the time. <clears throat> I need to do another chapter. Was, was this? Yeah, this isn't that long. And this is actually a good one. I think my dad mentioned this a lot. <laughs> In one way. And, he, and I, we actually have a, some writing on uh, regarding, well, regarding Numbers 21. I'm going to do a couple more chapters, so I want to get into that. <clears throat> Chapter 20. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of, of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. 
They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. And Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me, enough to honor me as holy as the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he showed himself holy among them. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, saying, This is what your brother Israel says. You know about all the hardships that have come upon us. Our forefathers went down into Egypt, and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our fathers, but when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now we are here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. <clears throat> but Edom answered, You may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The Israelites replied, We will go along the main road, and if we, our livestock, drink of any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Again they answered, You may not pass through. Then Edom came out against uh, them with a large and powerful army. Since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. <clears throat> It's a lot to unpack there, and of course they go they keep going. Um, the whole Israelite community set out from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. At Mount Hor, near the border of Edom, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites, because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Get Aaron and his son Eliezer, and take them up Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eliezer. For Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar. Eleazar. I keep getting that wrong. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, the entire house of Israel mourned for, for him 30 days. So, uh, you know, I've read some commentary on chapter 20, and I think it's because Moses struck the rock twice. If he just struck it, struck it once, that would have been different. But I think because Moses struck it twice, the Lord, it, it showed that he didn't trust the Lord to hit it on the first try. And Edom, I think we're going to see the Edomites later on. Um, in a few books ahead, so so yeah. I, 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 for some reason, I thought there was gonna be a fight there, but there wasn't.
So we're gonna st- we're gonna do chapter twenty one, and I think that'll be it. But you know, whenever I see my dad's writing in this Bible, I wanna wanna read through it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Take another sip. I'm waiting for a a guy to come to our house so we can detail our car. Chapter 21. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard the Israelites, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atherim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. And this goes to when Jesus said, I'm a snake in the wilderness. I think that's what he said. Um, But when you look to Jesus, you have salvation. And... My father wrote in the comment section here, you need a cross in order to tie a snake to a tree. We were born bitten, parentheses, terminally ill, sin. The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth. Then they set out from Oboth and camped in Abram, in the desert that faces Moab towards the sunrise. From there they moved on and camped in the Zerad Valley. They set out from there and camped alongside the Arnon, which is in the desert extending into Amorite territory. The Arnon in the, is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. This is why the book of the wars. The, this is why the book of the Lord of the war, book of the wars of the Lord says, Wahab in Sufa and the ravines, the Arnon and the slopes and the ravines that lead to the site of Ar and lie among the border of Moab. From there they continued on to Beer, the well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang the song, <clears throat> Spring up, O well, sing about it, about the well that the prince, princes dug, that the nobles of the people sank, the nobles with the scepters and staffs. Then they went from the desert of Matana, from Matana to Nahaliel, from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley in the Moab where the top of Pisgah overlooks the wasteland. Israel sent messengers to say to Sihon, king of the Amorites, Let us pass through your country. We will not turn aside into any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. 
But Sihon would not let Israel pass through this territory. He mustered his entire army and marched out into the desert against Israel. When he reached Jahaz, he fought with Israel. Israel, however, put him to the sword and took over his land from the Arnon to the Jebuk, but only as far as the Ammonites, because their border was fortified. Israel captured all the cities of the Amorites and occupied them, including Heshbon and all its surrounding settlements. Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken from him all his land as far as the Arnon. This is why the poets say, Come to Heshbon and let it be rebuilt. Let Sihon city be restored. Fire went out from Heshbon, a blaze from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the citizens of Arnon's heights. Woe to you, O Moab! You are destroyed, O people of Chemosh. He has given up his sons as fugitives and his daughters as captives, the Sihon king of the Amorites. But we have overthrown them. Heshbon is destroyed all the way to Dibon. We have demolished them as far as Nophah, which extends to Medeba. So Israel settled in the land of the Amorites. After Moses had sent spies to Jazer, the Israelites captured its surrounding settlements and drove out the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up along the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, and his whole army marched out to meet them in battle at Edri. The Lord said to Moses, Do not be afraid of him, for I have handed him over to you with his whole army in his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. <clears throat> so they struck him down together with his sons and his whole army, leaving them no survivors, and they took possession of his land. And there we will stop, because I've spoken for 33 minutes straight. My voice is getting a little scratchy. At least it's feeling scratchy. I've got a lot of work to do. The kids are out of school in about a couple hours. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna stop it soon. Just trying to figure out what I want to do with you guys. I have you guys at twelve thirty. I'm excited. Maybe I'll take you guys out to lunch. Hopefully, you guys don't want Applebee's because that place is awful. Uh, but. I love you. Proud of you. And I'm excited to see you. I'm excited. You guys bring me joy. And in everything you do, all of your days, do it for the kingdom and the king. Bye.
Always will. 